This is writer and game designer Robin DeVos. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrim Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Replacing alignment with nationality. Using microscope. Realities disliked by fiction. And the fire of London. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Ken and Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardus to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the smell of Doritos... And the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we are, unlike our normal attitude, concerned with national origin. So some of the chips are poutine-flavored, whereas the others are flavored with nacho cheese. Do we get special powers, or... Have we gone completely around the band Robin? What on earth are we doing? Are we are we getting ready to play 7th C? And so they should be not poutine, but coutine, and not nacho chips, but bacho chips? What, what are we up to? So what I thought we'd throw around uh, is some, riff some ideas for an F20-style uh, fantasy D&D-related uh, setting in which the role of alignment is taken uh, by nationality. And so the first thing to examine is what does alignment do in F20? And one major task that it performs is that it is kind of the uh, training wheels for role-playing. It creates conflict within the uh, setting, and it gives you sort of a beginning set of elements that you can use to sort of shade your character. So when you're first starting out, if you are starting out with D&D, which of course percentage-wise is, is not as big a percentage as it used to be, but it's still huge, you kind of learn to role-play by, well, I'm chaotic neutral, and what does that mean? And because alignment is sort of uh, Baroque, uh, you can, especially as a, as a young player, maybe spend a lot of time trying to figure out the difference between chaotic neutral and chaotic good and so forth. But uh, And that kind of reflects the sort of pseudo uh, Middle Ages feel of F20 in that um, your moral allegiances uh, were very important in the uh, Middle Ages because the church was the primary institution. But uh, as you go a little further, you get the rise of the nation state and people uh, stop defining themselves 
uh, as necessarily part of Christendom, but it's like, well, I'm an Italian, and or, or I'm a Piedmontese, or whatever. It, you know, the, the it took a while for uh, nationalities to uh, to rise to that level. But what happens if we encourage people to, instead of deciding what alignment they are, to specify what imaginary uh, nationality that they have? Or I, I know that you would favor probably going with real nationalities, but uh, this is F twenty after all. Right. Yes, and heaven forfend anything real happen in F20. Uh, I guess that's, uh, I made the joke earlier because I'd read the question, but that is kind of what 7th C does, right? You're playing a guy from Vendel or you're playing a guy from, I forget their pretend Britain, but Anglaire or whatever it is, and or um, the pretend France or the pretend Italy or the pretend Poland. And when you're playing someone from that pretend country, it's like vampire clans were, where you all have your little pocket set of attitudes and prejudices and you're, I don't like people from that country because we're historically at war. And I love people from that country because they're hilarious clowns and good for a laugh. And it's sort of built in, in that same sort of white wolf bloodline approach where you are given a little pocket, like you say, a pocket role-playing guide for your, for your character. Is that what we're talking about? Is, is uh, that sort of the role that we're looking to sort of import back into straight up F20 where, because you're from Gondor, you don't like people from Arnor because they're jerks. Right. So let's, let's specify that for some reason now, your national allegiance is the most important thing about you. And we could even, uh, let's build that into the F20 setting. And so maybe something, maybe there used to be alignments, uh, and now there aren't so much. So what might be going on in our F20 world that sort of gives us uh, an impetus so that it's not just a, uh, a concept in the background, but it's something actionable that is changing the lives of the characters. So how would a switch from alignment to uh, national allegiance come about in an F20 style world? Well, I think that what happened is that there, there's an older world that happened where there was alignment and then some magus or, or, or demigod or giant or somebody, somebody really powerful, uh, decided that they were sick and tired of being dinged with alignment penalties. And so they said, I'm going to make it because I'm the Lord of this land that whatever I do is good and right. And I'm not going to be dinged with alignment penalties by the gods anymore. And so they took a hugely powerful artifact. Uh, let's say it's like the, the, you know, the Brisingamon stones or something, and they busted it into pieces and they kept the best one for their country and they gave the other Brisingamon stones to their, you know, their warlords and said, go conquer the rest of this world and each of you will have this stone that will give you uh, the power to compel a, a behavior in the other countries. Well, this is a great plan, except that like most, you know, world conquering warlords in F20. He gets not all the way there and the good guys beat his guys about half the time. So everyone's got a Brisingamon stone. He takes his treasures and sticks them in a dungeon before he dies. Right, exactly. And so the um uh and so the everyone who runs a country, the Brisingamon stone thing is part of their scepter or part of their crown so that when you are swearing allegiance to the king, you are literally swearing allegiance to the king because there's a magical compulsion to behave the way that your nation makes you do it. And maybe the blood that was spilled over the battle has somehow connected it to the land. So you can't just up and take the prison gammon stone and move it to the next kingdom over. You are stuck with that one. If you want to rule this particular patch of earth, right. Or the initial magic that the giant or whoever the giant Magus did, um, uh, set it up so that those stones are each 
connected to the piece of earth. Maybe the crown originally was made from a stone from each of the nine countries because you don't want to have a zillion countries like you did in real Europe because then it gets too annoying for the rule book to hold. So let's say there are nine realms or whatever, and um, uh, that each of those realms has its own alignment stone. And then the central realm is still bad guy realm because that's where the giant Magus uh, ruled. And he may have lost the war, but he wasn't like, you know, he didn't shoot himself in a bunker like Hitler, his descendants, or even he are still there. And so you have a reason to explore and interact with alignment because, or with national alignment, because you need to do that in order to build an alliance of smaller stones. So you can finally defeat the great force of the, uh, of the main stone. That is what is keeping you from just worshiping Ra and getting points for being good like we used to in the good old days in the golden age. Right. And that suggests uh, a couple of uh, things. First of all, I would uh, suggest adjusting the idea that the king kind of controls or compels your behavior because players, especially in F20, love their freedom. So the way to reframe that, I think, is that you get a reward if you obey the national tendencies of the king. If you swear fealty to the king, you get power from him. Right. And that's where all your groovy, uh, fealty-related superpowers come from. Right. Your extra bennies for following alignment come from playing into your national stereotype and, and obeying the king. And then your alignment penalties are instead of, you know, you were not chaotic enough when you were chaotic good. They are, oh, you did something against the interests of your king. That's And it's a lot easier to adjudicate because if you rob the male then that means, yes, you are taking alignment penalties. But if you rob the male in another country, yeah, go ahead, knock yourself out. Right. And the each of the kings who determine the... Uh, and queens. And queens. Each of the monarchs who rule the... You know, one of them may be ruled by, an, you know, a sapient inanimate object. Let's not uh, <laughs> restrict ourselves here. That well, they the, would still be called a king, though. Right. Yeah. As as I mean, if you look historically at kings, many of them are sapient, inanimate objects, <laughs> and barely sapient at that. Right. So the the founder of each nation, the one who uh, had the original stone, is the one whose personalities kind of shaped the nature of their kingdom uh, and down to its ideology. And so at this point, you then create sort of the nine archetypal character types that you think that players could find easy to play so that you would have sort of a Falstaffian king who is into uh, pleasure and debauchery and you have your, uh, and this is much like the, the, uh, the icons in 13th age, you know, and you get your tough guy, uh, uh, martial uh, military type, you uh, have your uh, schemer. And so you sort of go down the list of different types of characters that your uh, players or just players in general like to play. You know, you get your trickster figure, uh, you have your uh, kind of cool healer type. Um, This might also imply a change in the uh, relationships between the uh, different uh, player character species that people can play so that the, uh, you know, the elves used to be off on their own, the dwarves used to be over there. Well, now everything has become on that level, sort of cosmopolitan. Yeah, they're all jumbled up by that big war that the giant uh, mages started. And so the elf fort, they used to be able to keep their own forests, but a lot of them got knocked down or whatever. And then once the Brisingaman stones started working, the elves realized that they, you know, they couldn't be cut off from the land because that was the whole source of their elfness. So they, you know, their their chief uh, ant or something had to 
you know, replant his tree in, in, in national soil. And so even the elves are stuck, uh, you know, following the same sort of pattern of who might or might not have been a, a elf. Although I suppose one of the nine is just by the laws of chance have going to have been an elf. Right. So you might still have a kind of elfy kingdom, but in general, everybody needs dwarves to build their fortifications. So they uh, fanned out. And so there's something different. You know, if you're a, a, a Varangian uh, elf, that's different than being a Varangian dwarf, but you've still got more in common than perhaps, you know, even uh, an elf from another country or a dwarf from another country. So that uh, also gives the players of those characters a chance to kind of mix those things up so that the uh, elf from the sort of Falstaffian kingdom uh, might be your kind of uh, uh, pan-like nature figure of sensuality and uh, 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 physical experience, whereas the uh, elf from the more martial society uh, is the sort of more elfin badass with the, the terrifying uh, bowman type and elf. So yeah. And that also just suggests that uh, alignment used to kind of be the province of clerics and paladins, and they've been downgraded, right? So that there, uh, there are still uh, gods that you call upon, but they are now uh, sort of more uh, national gods, so that uh, the uh, you're kind of worshiping perhaps the original founding king of each uh, nine things, and so they're or the uh, god that that king you know gave allegiance to. You know, if the trickster god or the trickster king says, you know, uh, well, it was thanks to the power of Loki that I was able to you know fool my enemies and become king of not Italy, then. Um, you can say, well, I guess Loki is the state church of not Italy. And if you want, you know, extra double bennies, worshiping Loki here helps, although you can still worship Odin, but you're going to be doing so under at least a, some social pressure, if not magical pressure. Right. And there are um, not all of the gods got to, uh, you know, get in good with one of the original kings. So that means that there are a bunch of, uh, you know, formerly big cults that are now fading away. So maybe, you know, there's, uh, maybe the Wotan cult didn't, uh, get adopted by any of the kings. So now it's, uh, clerics are off on the far fringes and you can choose to worship a Wotan cult, at least in the freer of the different societies, right? The Falstaffian king, you know, he's not going to go around stopping you from worshiping Wotan if you want, but no, Dionysus picks no favorites. Yes. Uh, but then, uh, you know, the more control freak gods don't want Votan coming back, so they have uh, suppression, and you uh, uh, are required uh, more to sort of follow the, the state gods or whatever they are. Yeah, if you're, so the, that, if you're the martial guy, you're probably like, everyone's behind Ra, and if you're not behind Ra, we'll know. Yeah, it's it's bad for good order and discipline if people are off worshipping Votan. And so the sort of deprecated cults may be kind of on the fringes of society trying to work back to you know, undo the great cosmic change that uh, dispensed with uh, alignment. That raises the question of, in some iterations of uh, F20 worlds, that there are items that have alignments associated uh, with them. And so uh, you could continue that in this and that uh, there would be great relics of the original different uh, nations and that you might have a, a sword that's uh, especially good against your Falstaffian enemies or against your uh, martial enemies or whatever the, you know, different nations are so that. Uh, and that would be a sword that would have been wielded in one of the great wars of the past against those enemies and learn to drink their blood and not like them. Right. And you can have spells that identify uh, people from other nations who are magically disguised or have learned to speak in different accents so that uh, if you're 
in one of the less cosmopolitan uh, kingdoms, the one with the secret police. The secret police have spells to identify uh, the uh, outsiders who are trying to pass as insiders. Um, the paladins, I guess, become avatars of national identity. Yeah, they become than- national champions as opposed to um, uh, champions of Christendom, which kind of in a way is what they become because the stories of Charlemagne's paladins and King Arthur's knights are beginning to, I mean, they, they all are pre nationality, but they get a big boost during the early modern period when we're trying to decide what's awesome about France because it's historically just this little pot of land around Paris, but now it has to cover the whole Megillah. And they're like, well, Charlemagne's paladins, that's what's awesome about France. We're all of us going to war with Roland and, and Oliver, so that makes us great. And the same thing, you get a bunch of Welsh guys on the throne of England, and they're like, no, King Arthur's knights are for all of England, all of Britain, really. And uh, then, the, you know, you have to convince the Scots of that over about 200 years, but it does take eventually. And and so you wind up with the the original you know, knights of, of King Arthur in the original stories are, are fighting for the Virgin Mary, but now they're fighting for Britain. And so you can have uh, your past paladins be reinterpreted just as they historically were into the strong arm of the various kingdoms. So you have your players decide which of the nations they want to be aligned with. And as you often do in F20, you may restrict them to only playing the more sympathetic ones, the ones who are capable of working together. And that uh, you can have a little chart uh, depending on you know which selection of the sympathetic nationalities people choose. You can then uh, say, okay, well, if you're this group, you're probably located in in a city in you know this more cosmopolitan kingdom. Right. Or, well, actually, you've all kind of chosen uh, to be allies of either members of the militaristic state or ally or its allies. So you could even function in the big military capital. And here are your choices of different nations that you could be in, in the home base of, and you can have a world changing, uh, uh, event, you know, the, the central evil giants kingdom, there's a resurgence there. Their latest King is in particular harmony with the, uh, with his ancestor and is starting to expand again. And that causes... Found his body and ate it. Yeah. And so that causes nations who, you know, they've been fractured. They still are fractured. But part of your job as national champions is to create uh, not only the strategic advantage of fighting the off the bad guys as they come toward you, but also by doing so, you create sort of a new uh, kind of propaganda image that encourages people from all of your different nations to cooperate with one another. And so you can start off as sort of, um, you you might even be all assigned from your different uh, hero training camps. You've all shown a degree of uh, potential to uh, harness the powers of the great nations. And so you've uh, uh, been through enough training to be first level. And then you are all sort of assigned together to be a, uh, a forward strike squad and maybe you can then, uh, as you become more powerful and uncover your own national powers and retrieve the artifacts that have been stolen, that you can become uh, bigger and bigger and more important. But there's other strike squads also kind of being assigned to do the same thing, so that if, uh, if, if you fail, if you guys don't turn out to be the heroes of legend, well, maybe your uh, rivals who are always giving you the stink eye in the tavern will be the ones who do that. The other thing that I was thinking of is that in between the various kingdoms, there are city-states, each of which is around 
a major artifact, like the crown of command or something, or the, um, uh, the deck of many things is the central magical power of a city state. It can't run a whole country. There isn't enough juju in it, but it can allow people from all different nationalities to mingle in it. And it's, it's, um, a prince or whoever doesn't have to make a choice as to who's, uh, who he swears allegiance to. He's swearing allegiance basically to the crown of command or to the deck of many things. And so people of all different alignments can be there without necessarily being, you know, having to go to war with each other. Right. It's like the way sigil works in right. the standard D&D world. And, and, and so maybe it's the prince of that city state that's like, if I build enough images of people from all different nations fighting together against evil, then that will amp up my magical power and make it less likely that people will take over my city state. And so you might even be working for, you know, you, you could meet in one of those uh, you know, Casablanca type places or sigil type places. And then, and then, and sort of that's the national agenda. And you can be, you know, meeting people who are more single minded from other countries and get to talk them around to, you know, Hey, let's all go fight the giants instead of you kill me for having a, a not Italy guy in my, in my posse. Right. And, and the city prince can be the one who's sort of pushing the agenda of unity. He's the mm-hmm. one who's seen that if all the other, if all the nations don't band together, the Titan is going to come back and stomp everybody. And uh, uh, because he is not of any of those nationalities, he's better equipped to, to see that that's happening. So his program of, uh, you know, creating a unity agenda between different people from different uh, nationalities, uh, possibly the, the outcasts who, you know, you're a good enough fighter. You've, when they cast the fealty spell on you, you show that you are, uh, still a, a loyal member of the, the Marshall uh, Kingdom, but uh, the current commanders don't really like you because you're kind of headstrong. Well, go off and we'll send you as our legate to the, the city prince, and then uh, that can be sort of your justification for why you're all uh, working together right. as a party. And now that we have a party of adventurers, that suggests that it's time for us to move along to another hut and let those adventurers go off to the land of the Titans to uh, fight loot and uh, perhaps even uh, colorfully bicker with one another over their different national quirks. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers.
It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time Patreon backer Jason uh, Bretti asks, You've talked about microscope before, but only in passing. Can you talk about how microscope could be used in a game? Why is it different or innovative? Can you suggest some usual uses for it in gaming or elsewhere, rather than the standard world-slash-scenario building? Uh, before we move on, Patreon backers, uh, be aware that if you use your question-asking powers to ask for us to talk about particular games that we didn't design, chances are Ken will have more to say than I do. Uh, I have read Microscope, but not played it. But Ken, you've actually used it in play, is that correct? Right. Yeah, I absolutely have. Um, should I think we should maybe begin by describing what Microscope is, in case we people should, have yes. like, uh, nodded off. Microscope is it's a game by Ben Robbins. It's a great little game. It's not very big, not very complex, really. And microscope as published and as I use it are two different things. So what you do is, um, uh, microscope, you, uh, set some parameters for what your game world is going to be. Uh, in, in my game, uh, the last time we've used it, it was a science fiction game. And so we're like, uh, what is there not going to be any of? And the players as one shouted time travel. And I said, all right, smart guy. And then, um, <laughs> not that that was aimed at anyone in particular. Not at anyone in particular. And so I got to say, and there's no holodex, right? There's no believable holograms. Um, none of that nonsense, no virtual reality, none of this stupid, uh, cyberpunk nonsense. And so you rule things out and then you rule things in. And so, uh, the players were like, we want archaeology to be, uh, uh, exo archaeology to be a p- big part of it. And I said, and I, uh, want there to be, you know, uh, uh, space Marines. And so we listed the things we did want to see. So those were sort of the overarching things that would be in the setting and that would not be allowed in the setting. And then you begin to come up with events that will fit into a span of time. And so you'll decide what's the beginning. And the beginning in this case was invention of the interstellar drive. And what's the end? And the end was the creation of the Federation of all human planets. Again, the Commonwealth of man which is where things become boring. And so we're doing everything in between those. And so then we start writing down earth Syrian war. Okay. Put that down. And then it's like rise of the robots. Okay. Put that down. And then as we're building these out, you sort of figure out what order they belong in. So when you write down first robot warlord, you're like, that's probably before the rise of the robots. I think that he's maybe an inspirational figure, or maybe he's like, after the rise of the robots, when there are some independent robot planets. So you decide where that would go. And then once you're done with that, you've got a timeline. And in the, into that timeline, because you've built it collaboratively, everyone has sort of an understanding of how each piece of the, of the history of the world and the, in many cases, the geography of the world grow into each other and interrelate in a way that you don't get by giving them a hundred page handout. Here's the history of the galaxy from the beginning of FTL to the foundation of the Commonwealth of Man read it and get back to me, uh, they will never read it. They will never get back to you. Right. Pro tip. <laughs> on a design level, the, the sort of interesting thing that is going on is that you are sort of in sequence, uh, members of the group are sort of switching out different responsibilities for creating different bits. And you, are, although it's collaborative in the sense that you all sit down together and, and come up with a bunch of ideas, and at the end of it, you have this grand sweep of history, but that you are kind of at odds with each other in the moment of creation of each different thing. You have different roles and certain people can contribute or not. And so when it's your turn to make something, you just get to say that it happens and other people have to react to that so that you're not sort of all exchanging ideas and all coming to a consensus on each choice, 
but that rather yeah, no are... individual creativity is definitely honored and maintained. And that's part of what makes the world seem more realistic because even, you know, <laughs> there are very few people now who believe that history was created by an omnipotent designer. <laughs> and it, even if he was omnipotent, he was omnipotent enough to make it feel like it was made by a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of people who are all trying to get one, one over on each other, uh, around a, a, a plate of, um, uh, nacho chips, perhaps. Yes. And unless that omnipotent creator was Jack Vance, we don't have yes. a, an explanation for which we world. cannot rule out, frankly. Yes. Although I think we can't rule it out because much of the world would be better written if it had been made by Jack Vance. Yes, and it'd be cooler, more interesting plants and better hats. Everyone would have better hats. Yes, that's right. The other thing that happens in Microscope is that as you play out a thing, you are supposed to play a dramatic scene from that event. So if it's like you know the uh, final abandonment of the Antares colony, and you play out the scene, you're the captain of the ship that abandoned the Antares colony, and you're the leader of the Antares colony trying to talk him into not abandoning him, and you are the reason that he has to abandon it, go, and you play out the little scene. And we found in play that doing that slows microscope to a crawl, so we don't do it anymore. Unless there's something where we really, really, like, it has to be unanimous that everyone's like, yeah, I actually do want to see what happens in that scene. That actually sounds fun. And then you just keep a a ruthless timer on it. Ten minutes, you're done. That was the scene. Hope everyone enjoyed it. And those scenes wind up being things that people, I think, feel their player character are going to really resonate with or or uh, spark off to. Because what I'm doing all this for is to create the background, a collaborative, understood, shared background for a world that people are then going to play in. And because I so often play my games in the real world, normally I don't have to do that. I say your handout is Wikipedia, knock yourself out. But if we're doing like I did a science fiction game, you're building a future together and then everyone has to understand how the future came about. You would do this similarly in a, in a pure fantasy game or a secondary world game of any kind where it's not Japan, but there are samurais on our list, and there are all these other things that we're doing. So what happens on this big magical island full of oni and fog? And then you're like, okay, here's how we build out our magical oni fog kingdom. But in a fantasy world, any kind of secondary world, and certainly I found in science fiction worlds, it becomes super, super relevant. Right. And so it, it's innovation uh, lies in the uh, its sort of control of framing and narrative responsibility And the fact that you are not the sort of narrative that you're building is not so much a a fictional narrative, but the uh, history of an imagined world. And as you suggest, you can sort of zoom in and briefly play kind of vignettes from that. But you're not developing the same long term uh, attachment to particular characters that you're playing the way that you would in a more conventional game. And and I think uh, that explains why this really interesting framework is uh, very often used as a prelude to play something more traditionally character focused with a different game system, which I know uh, people have done with a drama system and uh, the system that you use for your science fiction game would have been, was it GURPS? We used the CODA system from the Decipher era Star Trek role-playing game that uh, I co-designed and that turned out to work pretty well. Right. And so, uh, I think one of its great strengths is that it can be plugged into anything as sort of a, a prelude module. And I guess one of the challenges then of once you switch to the other rule set is to make sure that you keep honoring all of the details of this history because one of the tricks of any role-playing setting that has a long and detailed history is how do you bring all of that in and activate it 
uh, in play. I guess playing microscope solves that problem to an extent because the act of creating it is also uh, play, if not conventional role-playing narrative play. Um, and so you've already interacted with it, and maybe it doesn't matter so much to the uh, players how much they bring in the War of the Robots as one of, you know, 12 different possible details. How much of what you... So once you switch to uh, sort of traditional style play with the CODA system, how much of the setting that you created in Microscope actually arise during play and become uh, central to play? It varied because some of what... Uh, I mean, part of the goal of this whole game for me was to really lean back and let players have a lot of their head. So in the course of making the background, we came up with the seven uh, space powers that would be the signatories to the Treaty of Barnard Star and made up the rules for what claiming new planets looked like and, and sort of we set up that treaty in some detail. And so that became sort of our prime directive and our Starfleet rules. And every time we did something, it was like, well, does this, according to the Treaty of, the, of Barnard Star, can we do this? Is this legitimate? And I let them pick which of the seven factions they wanted to um, uh, to play from. And because they picked Tau Ceti University, which in the background had just attempted to launch a mimetic war against all other humanity to unite it, that meant that there was a lot of stuff from that element that happened in play because no one from other space civilizations really trusted or liked them because they're like, no, we're from the new Germany, not the bad Germany. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. Goodness. And they barely have tenure anymore. Those guys. Uh, and so there was a, it, it really informed it because they picked a something that was super unique to the setting. The fact that you're a university with a Starfleet and B they picked the guys who had literally just started the last interstellar war as their faction. So a lot of stuff from the past came pulling in. Whereas some of the things that we'd sort of thrown out, I think there was a whole alien race that barely even got mentioned. Um, and then the big alien race that starts the last war, they just met at the very tail end of the campaign. And that was sort of my way of signaling. We are getting to the end of the campaign. If you want to start this war, here's cannabis, go do it. Or if you want to just be the first guys in the very, very, you know, in the big long history of that war, you're in the, you know, the two pages in front. There were earlier conflicts, of course, such as um, you can be those guys, but that sort of signaled that. Another thing that really did help, though, and you could use even without the world building, is just the part where you list things that are and things that aren't in your background. That did a great job of putting everyone on the same page. So I knew I couldn't do time travel. They knew that it was never going to be time travel. Um, I knew that they were never going to, you know, um, uh, go into the holodeck and, and waste everyone's time. It, it really set parameters well, and, and those parameters inform play constantly. Whereas some of the events, yeah, we never really bothered to mention some of them because when you're making an event, you're making, you know, 40, 50, 70 things on a timeline. You're not going to wind up using all of them. And once you've decided that one of them is story focused, even in microscope, you drill down into that. You don't necessarily have to give every event equal weight. Now, uh, Jason uh, has yet another question. He uh, sure and does. That is, uh, can you suggest some unusual uses for microscope in gaming or elsewhere rather than the standard world slash scenario building? Now, it does seem to me a little bit like this question is this finely engineered bicycle. What can you use it for other than traveling around from place to place? Yes. This, um, uh, this, this bandsaw can use it for anything besides cutting wood. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, everything also makes a good paperweight or right. doorstop. Uh, but I, I don't know. 
I think what you would wind up doing with it is more finding different places that need a history of an imaginary world built for it than finding other uses for it in gaming. So if you wanted to uh, create a uh, world for a bunch of people to write fiction in all together and sort of a hearkening uh, back to Thieves World or, or Wild Cards, that would seem to me a really rich way to do that. Or if you're a team of people uh, creating a video game and you want to create a uh, rich world that you can sort of hint at in the background as the uh, figures go around first-person shooting or territory controlling or whatever it is that they do in your game, that that would be uh, fruitful. But I can't think of a way to use it in gaming that isn't about using it for the way it's designed. Yeah, it does seem... Re re I mean, it's, it's as you say, it's really focused on providing world and scenario building, and world building more than scenario building. And I think that if you were just desperate to use it, but not for world building, what you would have to do is use it for individual character backstory for like, you know, your, 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 uh, big bad in the game. You could run his life story, right? And you could say, here's, you know, let's all collaboratively make Quandos Vorn. Let's all collaboratively make, um, uh, Sauron. Let's all collaboratively make Dracula. And or it can't be Dracula because Bram Stoker already did him. But you can, uh, uh, you could um, uh, go through and everyone puts in a story. And the rule is they all have to be terrible because he's going to be a villain. There can't be a thing where, you know, but actually he just wants to meet a good woman and settle down. You know, that's that would, you know, take leech dramatic juice out. So your, you know, yeses and nos are yes, evil, no, sympathetic. And then you start playing down and maybe you'll still understand how he became the evil thing that he is and maybe you'll figure out some weaknesses that you that can then collaboratively drive play toward figuring out in character or maybe all you've done is just really built out his evil empire and now you have a real visceral satisfaction at tearing it down so i, I guess you could build up a a key element of the setting that you want to build collaboratively and that you know that you want to have everyone's buy-in for and um quando's born actually uh, you already kind of do that in, in you, guy you Reach. Do, yeah. absolutely yes well, I think that uh, that answers uh, questions. And uh, before we drill even further down and wind up creating our own alternate history, I think it's time to move on to yet another segment. The werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric 
metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Justin Cavern, Matt Ballara. Chris McLaren. Rich Bainauer. And the Redacted Files podcast. The chatter of IBM Selectric Keys and the gurgle of bourbon and the grr of frustration as once more we must figure out a segue into the name of this segment tell us we are once more about to learn how to write good. And Robin, uh, here in the how to write good uh, uh, cubicle or typist's den or office or whatever uh, we call our hut, um, we are looking at the world of the real and the world of the imaginary. And why is it that the world of imaginary is so insistent that the world of the real isn't real, right? Right. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you look at in the news and go, that's just too absurd. That's too on the nose. I would never get away with doing that in fiction. We're not going to turn this into another politics hut, so we're not going <laughs> to mention Donald Trump as uh, a overly cartoonish character in real life. But I thought that we would look at uh, things that are part of real life and who we really are and, and part of our lived experience that are actually very difficult to convey in fiction and why that might be in each case and how you can sort of go around uh, tackling that or whether it's even wise to do so. So uh, I'll throw out the first example, which is it is very difficult to sustain reader engagement with a story where the protagonist changes his goal. And in real life, we change our goals all the time, and we pursue multiple goals at once. And much of our activity is just sort of a quotidian day-to-day uh, -day pursuit of goals like continue to make money in order to eat and pay rent and, and that sort of thing. But that uh, fiction tends to be about people who are clearly driven toward a particular goal and one in which there are significant obstacles in front of that goal. And the reason fiction is about people who are very clearly goal-focused is that that's what allows us the investment in those characters to follow the story, understand what's going on, and more importantly, with any particular scene that occurs, we need to instinctively know uh, what we hope will happen and conversely what we fear will happen. And in order to do that, in order to be oriented in the story, we have to know uh, what it is that the protagonist is pursuing and we must have an opinion on whether we want them to achieve that or not. Uh, most of the time in a straightforward narrative, you want the character to achieve their goal. But in other cases, uh, you see that their goal is self-destructive and you want them to achieve the awareness that this is not the goal to pursue. And that's 
one of the few examples of having a character uh, reject their goal, and that usually has to kind of come about at the end of the story, uh, in which they experience the epiphany and realize that they've been going at everything in the, the wrong direction. But people who change their minds about things, who vacillate, are very difficult to successfully portray in fiction because that, uh, although it's very realistic, many of us vacillate in real life, we waver, we can't decide uh, that uh, in uh, fiction, the, the, just the way that that experience works of uh, watching or reading a story, we need to be oriented in it. And so we need a st stronger, more driven character than we might necessarily have in our own real lives. And it's not even a question of, I mean, fiction is super fine with Emma thinking she loves Frank Churchill, but discovering she loves Mr. Knightley, right? That's totally right. reasonable. But Emma thinking she loves Frank Churchill, she really loves Mr. Knightley, but she decides instead to become the world's greatest grouse shooter. That would be weird and off-putting, right? That she's going to go off to Scotland and shoot grouse and she doesn't need to marry. That would be unrealistic, even though people, I'm sure, are often very frustrated by their relative Franks and uh, Mr. Knightley's and do indeed go do something else, right? So, yeah, I, the, the, the notion, it's not even a notion of a choice that you have to make. It's a notion of some third thing just happening that you have to go off and do. And I think in, in that way, uh, the other thing that happens super often in real life that you can't sell in fiction is the deus ex machina, the thing out of nowhere that totally changes your life. Unless the novel is about that, unless the novel is literally about, um, I seem to have a great life and I'm moving toward my goal and then my family is killed in the smallpox and now I have to go do this other thing. If the novel is not about that being the inciting incident, then you are, you are kind of stuck with, you know, because the, the sort of blind thing out of nowhere happens to all of us. We have, you know, sudden illnesses amongst family. We have a disaster. We have a windfall, right? We, we might, um, uh, you know, meet someone who said, Oh yeah, that wonderful thing you've wanted to work and strive for. I'll just give it to you on a silver platter because I have a lot of silver platters lying around and lots of these sort of crazy things happen in, in your life. And if you look back, you, there, lots of things look like deus ex machinas and lazy writers doing things, but in fact, they happen all the time. And so you have to either ironically make that windfall or that disaster a major part of the story in a way that it kind of isn't, or you have to smooth it out and try and set it up and foreshadow it in a way that it also wasn't, right? Does right. that make sense to you? Yeah. In order to solve that problem, and it is, it's a more solvable problem than the previous one, well, yeah. is to, <laughs> as you suggest, to prepare the reader for the surprise, even though the character is not prepared for the surprise. And there are certainly disjunctive narratives where crazy things come out of nowhere. That's one of the things that was very refreshing about Pulp Fiction, for example, which mm -hmm. is the last thing you're expecting is for uh, sadomasochistic creeps to grab Ving Rhames and Bruce Willis and drag them into a basement. And because that's so uh, shocking and it's already, a f and in a way, Tarantino already prepares you for that by having it be a fragmented narrative in the first place where there's the expectation of not being able to develop expectations that crazy yeah. things may come out of nowhere. But if you were telling just that story in a linear fashion, you would as narrator have to introduce the uh, gimp and his friends before they then kidnap uh, the Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames characters. Or, you know, if your character is going to get smallpox, you have to mention ahead of time that there's a smallpox epidemic, or if they're going to get uh, hit by a car, 
you briefly have to establish that there's a reckless driver on the road. And that impinges on you in other ways because that requires you to have a multi-character perspective. If you're using a first-person perspective, the character who's not expecting their life to suddenly be changed, by definition, can't know that they're going to suddenly develop a, a horrible wasting disease or a truck's going to hit them. Or and, win the lottery. Uh, so it's something that you can get around, but it is something that you have to go an extra mile to sell in fiction. Another thing that happens all the time in real life that is very difficult to sell people on or that readers will rebel from is that you can seem to convince another person in your life to change their mind or change their behavior, and you can seem to be successful in that moment. And then the next time you approach them, they have reverted to their previous selves and behavior and have found a rationalization or just not even bothered to find a rationalization that allows them to go back to be who they were. And, you know, if you've ever in your life tried to help someone who doesn't want to be helped, that's the experience. Or who might want to be helped, but they want to drink more. (laughs) Yes. And so that is very frustrating in fiction to have a, uh, seeming victory of characters interacting with each other and bringing about a change, which then turns out not to bring about a change at all. And perhaps that's because one of the uber fictions underlying at least the Western tradition, or even maybe our recent Western tradition, is that people have free will and are capable of change and can transcend themselves, uh, which if you think in your life, and find, you know, it happens, but there's lots of counterexamples of people who resist change. But that's very difficult to uh, portray uh, unless you make that your entire subject. Or another way that you can do it is, you know, uh, I, I went back to him later and everything had uh, reverted to uh, normal. So I had, we had the conversation all over again and I pull them back toward the direction, right? Uh, another thing that, of course, fiction always does is in, in an argument between people, most of the really big arguments that you've had in your life with your loved one have gone on possibly for hours, like for <laughs> the entire length of time it takes to watch a feature-length film. So uh, those have to be condensed. If you're writing prose fiction, you can say, and then they continue to argue and revisit the same points and repeat themselves and got angry at themselves all over again after resolving made a giant thing out of something else that wasn't actually related, but we both knew that it was right. And it seems utterly trivial to write it down because in fact it was, but at the time we were super mad. Right. And so that the sort of kind of caprice and inflexibility of real human behavior is something that people do not want to revisit in fictional form and is hard to make people accept uh, because I think part of the reason people go to fiction and to uh, stories of personal drama is the fantasy of things that can be resolved and, and the fantasy of a great transformational arc that changes you. And uh, you can think of a lot more examples of people who undergo rad- radical transformations in fiction than in your real life or in your family. And I think the poultice for that is the naturalistic fiction that begins, you know, right around Dickens. And then for some reasons, you know, stop being that for a while in early modernism. And then now in postmodernism and and late modernism, it's back again, where 
yeah, people are always letting people down and, and not changing. And you're, I tried very hard to raise them up, but it, the forces, you know, in Dickens's time, it was the forces of poor character and, 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 and sin have dragged them down. And in ours, it's like, oh, they couldn't, you know, holistically you know, complete themselves, blah, blah, whatever. And there's lots of that because it's all happening as a way to show that our narrator, our main character is good and better because they are rising above sin and degradation and insufficient closure and whatever else in the way that these other poor saps aren't. And you can make that character super interesting and you can use them even to drive drama. And the example that I would pick is rounders where Ed Norton's character gets the talking to, I think a million times in that movie and is always coming back to ruin Matt Damon's life just over and over and over. And we've all known that guy. Some of us have, you know, hung out with that guy even and been friends with that guy, but we've all known our, our individual worm. And so that felt really real. Even if, as you tried to sell it as a story, you'd say, so really literally the same thing happens seven times in a row. And this is a good movie. Um, and it is, uh, because it's, it, it, you know, they really dug down and, and made the milieu strong. Um, and I think that the similar problem of the long argument is just that we, thank God, don't really have a stenographic genre of novel. And, you know, in, in TV, it, it looks faker than a novel because a novel, as you say, can say, and this continued for hours and we never saw the movie really because we were still yelling at each other you know, as we walked out. Only this time it was about whether or not we should buy raisinets. And, but we both knew it was really about our lives. And, and you can sort of pad that into a novel in a way that you can't do it in a, in a drama and, and have a literally, unless again, the drama is experimental and the whole uh, movie or the whole play is an hour and a half of bickering about something. And the goal of the play is to let you know that, no, we're not bickering about the movie. We're bickering about the fact that, you know, she wants kids and he doesn't or whatever. Right. Right. Do you have another example of something that's uh, too real for fiction? <laughs> something that I, I think that there's a lot of things that um they, they may not be hard to sell, but they just never show up. And I'm talking about just your sort of quotidian aches and pains. Like if you wake up and it's like, oh, my, um, uh, my butt really hurts. No one in fiction ever has their butt really hurt. Right. They're just, or, you know, or gets a cold for no reason. Or I'm gets still a cold waiting. for no reason. Yeah. For, and for it the lasts Spider-Man for a month. comic in which Spider-Man <laughs> uh, is hampered fighting the vulture because he woke up with a bad cold that morning. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Spider-Man has spider immune systems, but anyway, um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, you, um, uh, but you, you have uh, physical ailments that either in fiction, you either are missing an arm and an eye, but are just as good as any man jack of this force. Yeah. Or you are felled by a long wasting disease or better yet your girlfriend is. And you're there at, at her bedside saying, why, why cruel universe? Why? But you never just have a day where you, you know, whack your arm really hard. And so it's all tingly for the whole rest of the day. And that means you're, you, you know, you drop your phone or something. It's just, Unless, again, unless the novel is literally about random stuff happening to you, which there are novels like that, but you, you know, your, your hero is never, you know, uh, James Bond never really twists his ankle, um, uh, because he steps into a pothole out of his Aston Martin and then he can't chase down Blofeld. That never happens to any dramatic, any iconic character. And right. it barely happens to dramatic characters. Right. And, and if you cough, it means you're going to die. Yeah. Right. That's, that's just a sign. <laughs> Or that you have a podcast. I guess that's the other thing it means. Yes. <laughs> Another huge issue is that readers uh, and commenters want the reason that people fall in love with each other to make sense. Ah! They want falling in love to be a conscious choice that you make and something that happens as a slow series of stages. 
Now, sometimes it does happen as a slow series of stages, but uh, I think more often it is a matter of sort of instant chemistry. And actually the way that the movies handle it is, in this case, accurate in that you have a close-up of the one character, you have a close-up of another character, you show them looking at each other. One of and them then, is Kira Knightley, and so, yeah, obviously you're in love. Right, <laughs> yeah. and their music swells on the soundtrack, and it's like, boom, those two people have a connection to each other. But even if you're writing a, a screenplay, you will get notes back saying, I need more foundation or an explanation for why they fall in love with each other. You can't well, say, because one of them is Kira Knightley. Pay attention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can retroactively, in your own life, explain why you fell in love with people that you fell in love with and what what you saw in them. But the actual, you know, why you uh, really clicked as opposed to clicking with, you know, the uh, other half dozen people who were also uh, equally attractive and interesting and, and is as much a matter sort of of um, circumstance and uh, serendipity and nothing that you can explain even if you then create an explanation. And an example of that is that people who are very similar will say, well, we got together because we're very similar and we share this same temperament. And people who are very different will say, well, obviously it's a case of opposites attracting. Uh, but in reality, this thing that's a staple form of all of narrative, there's a lot less active, conscious, free choice going on as opposed to uh, retroactive rationalization than I think any of us really want to uh, concede and therefore see in our fiction. And I think that is why Jane Austen is so great is because she takes something that, and if you read her novels, it actually does happen that people fall in love just like they realistically do, but because of the social pressures or because people are pigheaded or because of whatever, we have a whole novel about figuring that out. The love process happens naturalistically. The response to it is the, uh, I don't say artificial, but it's, it's the rest of it. And Jane Austen manages to make that so completely convincing as we read it that these are real pressures, because in certainly in Pride and Prejudice, they are super real pressures, but in other ones, in Emma, less so, that you realize what a great job she did turning something that is as bald and insubstantial as, oh my God, that's Jennifer Ayla across the ballroom. Of course, I'm in love with her, to a lengthy story of how Darcy has to realize he's in love with uh, Lizzie and Lizzie has to realize she's in love with Darcy and blah, blah, blah. When, you know, again, a child could have told you that they belong together at the very beginning of the novel. And that because she did that so well, that's why that became the pattern for all Western romance writing. And then for most Western romance film, because Jane Austen solved that problem so well, uh, at the beginning that everyone's like, I'll just use her solution. I'm not as smart as Jane Austen. I'm going to go do that. But, you know, I mean, real, Real human emotion is almost never rational or explicable. And so most fiction winds up begging the question. It's like, well, of course, Holmes and Watson are best friends. Uh, why would that be? Holmes is, at, you know, even in the novels, he's kind of a, a weirdo and a sociopath. And Watson pretends at the beginning of the novel that he's sort of grumpy because of his war wound, but he never acts grumpy in any other context. So we're just that that's just Arthur Conan Doyle writing their meat cute. And right. The, the difficult relationships to explain are not the ones that are meant to be together, uh, because in also in real life, you do see all sorts of couples who go, yeah, they're totally meant for each other. It's, they're so lucky they actually met. But 
the relationships, the, the wrong and dysfunctional and messed up relationships are it's like, why is she with that guy? You know, he's, <laughs> he doesn't look like Miles Teller. He looks, uh, uh, like a frog that somebody stepped on and he's, uh, awful to her. And, uh, and he's, he's not even uh, rich, weird and eccentric. And, and there's nothing in her personal background that suggests that she's, you know, reliving a dysfunctional relationship with a, uh, a mother or father because I know her mother and father and they're both love this. This relationship is utterly mysterious to me, and it's very difficult. Uh, that sort of, of uh, or even like a divorce, you will often get the question, well, I see why these characters hate each other, but I don't see what they ever saw in each other. Well, divorce is common. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> Lots of people uh, bitterly despise each other and got together, and and often the reason for it is that they there was something that brought them together, but it wasn't enough to uh, sustain a, a relationship over time. Well, I mean, with, with, a, with, in fiction, if you're starting with a divorce, you can just always say, Oh, the sex was great. The sex would still be great. We just can't stand the sight of each other. That is, uh, an, an often resorted to, <laughs> and I suspect in real life, that is also possibly the explanation for a lot of divorces is that the, the you, you were, you were having angry sex and you didn't even know it. Right. So I, I think that's a, a good uh, look at the, uh, opening bit anyway, at a list of things that you have to work extra hard to sell. So if you've got a, divorced couple or a mismatched couple or uh, someone who's aimless and changes his goal uh, or uh, someone who keeps repeating the same pattern with the same uh, person over and over again, uh, that uh, yes, those are all things that are uh, part of real life. And uh, yes, because of the way that people uh, want fiction to work, things that you will have to work extra hard to make work in your fiction. And on that summary note, let us move to our final segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons alert us to the fact that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And once again, uh, one of our Patreon backers is using their Patreon backer powers to ask Ken a question about his past Time Incorporated activity. And uh, that person is Shane McLean. He asks, Why did Time Incorporated send Ken back to ensure Thomas Bloodworth's inaction in the early stages of the Great Fire of London? And what did that inaction allow to be removed from the nearby buildings 
that would have been destroyed in the demolition. As sometimes happens, the Patreon backer question is somewhat leading, but Ken, I'm sure you have many interesting anecdotes about your trip to meet Thomas Bloodworth and to bask in the flames of the Great Fire of London. Indeed I do, Robin. I guess to begin with, we should mention, for the people who were not paying attention in 1666, that Thomas Bloodworth was at that time the Lord Mayor of London, and his period of Lord Mayorship runs basically from the Great Plague of London to the Great Fire of London, so next time you're mad at Rob Ford, think about that. (laughs) He was a merchant, he sold turkeys, that was his job. And he sold them so well and so successfully that he became Lord Mayor. So just go play that over in your tin type. And at the uh, fire began about two in the morning on uh, the 2nd of September, 1666. It broke out in a baker's house, Thomas Fariner. And it was probably he left the oven open. And uh, Thomas Fariner, who escaped the fire with all of his family, but not his serving girl, uh, did not blame the serving girl, which I think shows some chivalry. Instead, he just denied he left his oven open. But when a fire starts in the baker's house, it is not a mysterious Frenchman. It is, in fact, a lazy baker. Anyhow, the fire starts. They wake up the uh, Lord Mayor because he's the only person who has the power to order houses to be pulled down. Back in that magical time, the way you fought a fire was you had a big old iron hook, and it was attached to a big old piece of wood, and you tied the wood... You you secured rings to the wood, and then you secured ropes to the rings, and you put men or horses or oxen on the other end, and they pulled on the houses next door to the house that was on fire. And because houses were built out of wattle and daub and, and, and lath and plaster and, and crummy timber, you could forcibly pull them down using a hook on a pole. So uh, D&D players, think about that next urban adventure. Pull down the house. Uh, that'll fool him. But it turns out that if the Lord Mayor does it for no reason, he has to pay. And uh, Thomas Bloodworth was selling a lot of turkeys, but I don't think he was selling that many turkeys. And there had been, I think, something like 150 fires in London in the last decade, maybe even sooner than that, maybe it was even less than that. Fires were always happening in London. So he said, um, perhaps Ill- ill-advisedly, a woman could piss that fire out and went back to bed. And it turned out, no, that's not what could have happened. So they didn't pull down the the houses near the bakers. By the time he got back up and was uh, dragged down to the fire because it was getting very big, they started pulling houses down, but they were pulling them down too close to the fire. So all of their wooden poles were getting uh, too hot to handle and they would pull down the, the, the house and the upthrust of, of air made by that would then carry the fire over to the next house. And so they were not able to, um, uh, pull down the neighbor houses and it wasn't until King Charles basically gave the order to pull down a whole stretch of houses about half a mile from the fire that they managed to contain the great fire of London. But that was like five days later. So Thomas Bloodworth has gone down in history as a weak man, um, a silly man, and a lot of other things that Samuel Pepys called him, which although we can't always trust Samuel Pepys, history has decided to trust him in Ray Thomas Bloodworth. And even uh, historians of the Great Fire tend to say, yeah, that was um, uh, that if, was If you want to blacken uh, somebody's name in history, it's uh, useful to A, be a uh, skilled writer, and uh, B, leave your diary behind. Yeah, that cer- certainly does help. And also be uh, part of court and have an endless fund of awesome gossip. That also helps, I think. So what I'm hearing here is that you did not need to intervene in order to exacerbate the fire. Is that the case? No. All I had to do was get Thomas Bloodworth drunk the night before, 
so that when he was dragged out of bed, he was in the middle of that sort of nascent hangover. He spins type thing in a bad mood already goes back to bed. And then when he gets to the fire, here's what's great. Samuel Pepys, actually, this is probably why he's so mad. He goes to the court in his telling. He's the first person to tell Charles about the fire. Charles says, oh, Samuel Pepys, only you of all my courtiers are trustworthy and good. I will send you to Thomas Bloodworth and give you the power to bring soldiers with you to have him tear down some houses. And in Pepys telling, he went back and told Bloodworth this. And Bloodworth said, I don't need any stupid soldiers. And I'm going to bed because I've been up all night not fighting this fire. And it's making me stroppy. And that's Peeps's version, and uh, Bloodworth denied it, but apparently inconclusively. So it was just a really bad hangover is what made him reluctant to fight a fire. So in your research of, of this, or in going back and have, uh, raising going a few back with in him, time research, uh, did you discover anything weird or strange or interesting about Thomas Bloodworth? Not so much about Thomas Bloodworth. He is as he was presented. Um, he's a court assistant for the Levant Company, so... Uh, I suspect he may be uh, involvable in our various Ottoman adventures, as we have discussed previously. He's on the committee for the East India Company. Certainly, if there are weird artifacts coming into England, he might have gotten his hand on one, and it might have been important to get him out of bed and be able to rifle through his belongings. And then when he's later uh, accusing everyone of stealing stuff, it's like, well, you set, you set London on fire. We don't care what you think. Uh, so he's... He's certainly a target or a, a possible um, uh, target of other kinds of adventurous behavior. But basically, no, he's just a, a, a bureaucrat out of his element, unwilling to uh, fight with the aldermen and the big uh, merchants who own the property that he's being proposed to tear down and uh, just makes the wrong decision in an emergency and winds up not being Lord Mayor of London anymore. So as Shane perhaps somewhat uncharitably suggests, uh, was this a looting expedition on uh, your part or that of Time Incorporated? Did you? It's called salvage, first of all. But yes, there are, in fact, three Holbeins that vanished in the Great Fire, and they vanished. One of them is an unknown Holbein, and I can tell you it's very lovely. Uh, and that's uh, Hans Holbein, the uh, uh, portraitist from the Tudor era, the painter. Right. Yes, that is um, who we are talking about, Holbein the Younger, uh, specifically. Uh, not the other Hans Holbein. And he painted a number of portraits. He painted a lot of other uh, history paintings, things like that. Because the other two Holbeins that are missing were on the wall of the Steel Yard, which was the old Hansa a sort of uh, town inside London. Uh, and it was the triumph of riches and the triumph of poverty, two allegorical paintings, uh, which we have the pencil sketch of, I think, one of them still. But we don't. And we have drawings that people did of it standing and looking at it, but we don't have the originals because the originals vanished in the great fire of London or did they as many allegorical paintings do. They have a lot of um, characters from myth and legend and history all up there. And if you or other people who have paid attention might have recognized me in one of those. And since we are talking as game designers, perhaps it is not the triumph of wealth that apparently was considered to be uh, a, a security risk by time incorporated. And we had to get me out of the, uh, out of the steel yard and into time incorporated's lovely art museum. You should come see it sometime. And uh, the other whole mine, you can't steal triumph of poverty without stealing the triumph of riches. And uh, the other whole mine was just sort of a lucky accident that happened to be there. Or not there. It happened to be in a goldsmith's house on London Bridge. So this is basically a cover-up mission 
in order to hide your activities during the Tudor era. And so uh, what was the uh, threat that required you to allow more uh, of London to burn down? Because it seems like kind of an extraordinary measure. Or does London have to burn down in, um, in order for other positive things to happen, and therefore you might as well uh, take that opportunity to grab the painting? Well, first of all, as I intimated with the 150 fires thing, London's going to get set on fire whether I do it or not. And it's all about timing. Well, and, and Second you didn't of all, set the fire. You just... I didn't set the fire. I just got the fire to be big enough so that we could borrow some Holbeins. Second of all, London before the fire was awful. It was filthy and horrible and plague-ridden, I point out. No plagues since the fire. Lots of plagues before the fire. So there, take that, people who criticize people who burn down major cities, such as Chicago. The other thing is that uh, it, you get uh, all manner of, of useful fire codes and other useful things in the rebuilding. And most importantly of all, you get St. Paul's designed by Christopher Wren, not by some gothic loser that no one cares about. So if you're going to complain about me letting the Great Fire of London rage out of control for six days or five days or whatever it was, um, three days. Anyway, if you're going to complain about that, you're complaining about St. Paul's Cathedral, and I want to hear nothing from you. Right. That's what I'm saying. So, London had it coming, basically. Yeah, London had it coming, and we get St. Paul's Cathedral and Holbein's. But the real mission, Robin, and you are very keen, a keen-eyed observer, to notice that that seems like a lot of trouble to go to just for some hands Holbein's. The real mission was to steal Samuel Moreland's ingenious mechanism from the London Post Office. And what was his ingenious mechanism, he asks. I'm glad you asked. This was a secret device, a guy named uh, Samuel Moreland, who, as it transpires, is one of those sort of crazy polymath-type guys who shows up, and in this case, no one has yet dedicated comic books to him, although I don't know why. Uh, he is uh, Sir Samuel Moreland. He was a diplomat. He was a spy. He was a mathematician of some great skill, uh, was a linguist. He invented, hilariously enough, a fire engine, <laughs> which it turns out was not being used uh, at the time. He made a calculating machine. He made a machine that made uh, trigonometric calculations. He invented the speaking trumpet. He built mirrors for uh, King Charles. He made barometers. We remember barometers being so crucial in our um, uh, longitude stories. He's just an all-around super guy. He's a spy. Uh, Peeps doesn't like him at all because um, he, he's a, a, a weaselly little jerk um, who would became a baronet just because of his brains, not because of being born to it. And he also invented a machine that, according to him, and as demonstrated before King Charles II, was a device that would open a letter, remove the seal, copy a full page in one minute, and then restore the letter. The copy was indistinguishable from the letter. The um, uh, seals could be restored to perfect sharpness. In short, it was a method for spying on the mail, and it was the official method that was used uh, from circa 1660, 1661. Um, here's Moreland's uh, way. Moreland was part of Cromwell's espionage apparatus, but as is so often the case, as the head of the espionage apparatus, he begins negotiating with King Charles, saying Cromwell's not going to last forever, and when you come back, just remember that it was I, Samuel Moreland, <laughs> who was on your side all along, feeding you Carefully intel. Carefully hedging my bets. Carefully hedging my bets, and that is how you become Sir Samuel Moreland, not just Samuel Moreland the weasel. 
And so anyway, uh, he, he gives his machine to King Charles, or I suspect sells it for uh, fat offices uh, full of money. And the machine is used by King Charles, apparently, to monitor diplomatic communication and in personal communication within England. And it's an amazing machine. No one has the faintest idea how it worked. Um, he tried in his dotage to sell it to William of Orange and William of Orange said, I don't know what you and your Catholic friends get up to, but in Protestant times, we don't do that. <laughs> Apparently not having paid attention, yes. but uh, gentlemen rate, don't he, read each other's mail or perhaps he just didn't want uh, Sir Samuel Moreland to read anybody's mail, which is another possibility. And so we don't, we have no idea how, what the machine was. The best guess is that it's a sort of a combo of some sort of primitive box camera, maybe, and and just really deft knife work. It's got to be something incredibly elaborate. It's doing like three or four different things, right? Yeah, it's got a lot of stuff going on, but the, the you know, the king eyewitnessed the, the demonstration. He forged the, the handwriting of, of very high-ranking members of the court who swore they couldn't tell it from their hand, handwriting. So... It might be a combination box camera and con game, or it might have been an out-of-time technological mystery. And either way, it had to be taken from the London Post Office in such wise that they wouldn't just go and build another one. Right. And so, uh, was this after Moreland was out of the picture? This is while Moreland is in the picture, but when, when the postmaster lost it in the fire, I suspect he took a while to tell King Charles that he had lost it. And then whatever happened after the fire... King Charles may maybe have just also have thought better of giving Sir Samuel Moreland the power to read all the mail in England. Right, and, but if it's if it's a chronological, of course that suggests that Moreland didn't build it; he just found right. it. Right, so he, he, he found it. He it. got it from a different time traveler, uh, a sloppier one. And I, I imagine also that he found out that the initial machine was inexpensive, but the real cost was in the toner cartridges. The toner, the to- that's how they get you. And, and indeed, he did eventually become very poor later in life, and I suspect it may have been toner costs. And you think it's bad now, try buying toner from 400 years in the future. That is expensive toner. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's, that's uh, always four to six weeks on Amazon. You can't get that right away. No, you can't get that one. And um, uh, that's uh, in Star Trek, even. Toner in the future is made from dilithium. <laughs> yes, there's some problems are eternal. Exactly. Even in the in, even the post scarcity society, that's how the Ferengi make uh, make all their latinum is by selling uh, toner. So, uh, did Time Incorporated just want this for their vault, or was there uh, some blow that you needed to strike to English intelligence in order to make sure that they didn't have this? Well, obviously, we're all in favor of uh, William of Orange becoming King of England because that's how things ought to work. You certainly shouldn't have a bunch of filthy Stuarts on the throne, uh, especially given that they attempted to destroy the liberties of America. Uh, later on, not Charles II. He was pretty good about it, but but his kids, Marty, it's your kids. So yeah, we needed to figure out what that was, figure out who dropped it, and prevent uh, the Stuarts from having that uh, advantage over uh, William of Orange that would have allowed them to succeed in uh, and put down the Glorious Revolution, and thus put down the United States of America, and thus Chicago, which needed its own fire. But that's a different story. Right. And as we are uh, beginning to talk about different stories, that suggests that the story of this particular episode is done. We must bid you all a fond farewell, but we'll be back in your ears next week to talk about more stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. 
Pelgrane Press, Askfagelm, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Join such hallowed patrons as Adam Alexander, Brendan Power, Jeremy French, Kevin J. Maroney, and Oli Toivonen. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.